It was in the second grade, at the lunch table. I was sitting next to my friend Heidi, a safe distance away from the gaggle of boys on the other side. Neither of us wanted to get too close in those days. I was moments away from biting into my stale ham sandwich and mashed potatoes still formed in the shape of the lunch lady's scoop. When one of the boys from across the table said, Hey, look, I'm Annie. I glanced over and saw him pulling his eyes into narrow, snake-like slits. Ching-chong, ching-chong, he chanted. The whole table burst out laughing. I felt humiliated. Blushing deep red, I tried to make myself as small as possible. You should tell a teacher, Heidi said. No, I replied, feeling ashamed and just wanting it to end. It's fine, really. The incident was eventually reported by my friend. The boy has since apologized. Yet that moment has stuck with me. It was one of the first times I understood my ethnicity as something to be ashamed of. It was also when I realized I was the only Asian kid in the room. Looking back, I wish I had stood up for myself that day. But that's a hard thing to do when you don't know if anyone else will have your back. Plus, what do you even say to that? My name is Annie Prafke. This is episode two of Chinese Adoptees, Not Abandoned or Alone, a podcast about Chinese adoptee experiences. I was sad to hear that my sister Ellie, who is 19, had a nearly identical racist encounter in elementary school. I remember a lot of the mocking of the eyes, like my peers would like stretch their eyelids so then they looked quote unquote Asian and then they would mock me. Were those friends that did this or was it strangers? I remember one in particular and it was just a popular boy in the grade and then since he did it, a lot of other boys felt like they could do it too. So it was it was just like uh like a snowball effect, I guess. And what were you thinking when this happened? What was going through your head? At first, I kind of had to take a second to register it. But then after I did, I was like, oh, that's really mean. Like, I can't control the way my eyes look. Just because they did that, I was very self-conscious of it and I couldn't change it at all. So it just pointed out of not a flaw, but just like an insecurity, I guess. I think that's the first time I wish I was white. Like my sister, I didn't think of these moments as racism or even bullying. I saw it as my peers pointing out something that was inherently wrong with my appearance. Chinese people have faced discrimination the entire time they've lived in the United States. The first Chinese immigrants in the U.S. were young, single men who arrived as gold miners and railroad workers in the West. Dr. Jennifer Kwan Dobbs, Associate Professor of English and Director of Race and Ethnic Studies at St. Olaf College, says that these immigrants were blamed for low wages and poor working conditions. They were viewed as a threat, 
a yellow peril. This yellow peril um, emerged during the um, mid to late 19th century. And it was a term that emerged in the newspapers in order to articulate white supremacist fears around jobs being um, taken by uh, Chinese migrants from white workers. And so it's a racist term that um, comes from xenophobia, um, in particular, um, fear around the flows of Chinese migrant workers who came to the US predominantly to do work that um, many white laborers did not want to do. These immigrants were frequently beaten, tortured, and killed by angry white and Hispanic workers who scapegoated them for economic instability in the Western United States. Through discriminatory laws and policies, the Chinese were taxed higher than U.S.-born citizens, and they were forbidden from carrying loads on poles, which was customary in China, or from testifying against Americans of European descent in court. This finally led to the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, which halted Chinese immigration into the U.S. and prevented Chinese people who were already here from becoming citizens. It wasn't repealed until 1943. While Asian men were seen as a labor threat, Asian women were viewed differently. To many American and European men, Asian women were exotic objects of desire. Dr. Kwan Dobbs says this Asian fetish has existed for centuries and was initially tied to imperialism. When Europeans attempted to conquer the places and the people they encountered. You know, here we really have to go back to Orientalism. We note like how the stylization of the so-called West as the Occidental and the so-called East as the Oriental uh, comes out of white supremacy and motored through Orientalism as a way of extending empire. So in particular, the European empires. And I would also add the U.S. empire. And so here, you know, this idea of the Oriental woman as being submissive, pliant, really looking to a white man as a savior, as a militarized image, conquering her body, owning her body becomes a metaphor for an imperialist impulse. And from the dust will arise a new China. General! I will hold Asia and half the world in my hand like a bunch of grapes to be ripened by the sun of heaven. And you, madam, your destiny will be linked with mine. Asian women were exoticized and sexualized in popular entertainment of the time, which often featured them having romantic relations with white men. We, we see like how going back to um, the 19th century with how this Orientalism um, gave rise to cultural texts, like for example, Madame Butterfly. And even before Madame Butterfly, the um, story written by Pierre Loti, Madame Chrysanthemum, um, whereby 
you have this so-called occidental desire for this kind of violence to possess her. And in that regard, her body. Dr. Kwan Dobbs says that while Asian women were seen as desirable by American and European men, their supposed sexual allure was also viewed as a threat to moral society, just as male Asian workers were seen as a threat to high wages and fair working conditions. This was evident through the Page Act of 1875, which was enacted seven years before the Chinese Exclusion Act, and was used to restrict the immigration of Chinese women, who are assumed to be disease-carrying prostitutes. Many times throughout history, and alive in our current moment, Asian American women are desired, and at the same time, the other side of that coin is that they are a danger, and the whole coin is dehumanization and their disappearance without any reference to their names, without any reference to their histories. They are bodies to, to be used and to be disposed of. Asian women continue to be fetishized, with assumptions made about their demeanor, their bodies, and their sexuality. This idea is so pervasive that people can make offhand comments that may not have ill intentions, but in reality, disempower the women who have to listen to them. This was the case for my sister, Ellie. I walked into my English class, and I was going through a phase, so I wore a lot of lipstick. And that day, I wore red lipstick. And the teacher walked in, and he said, You look just like a China doll. Yeah, I didn't really wear much red lipstick after that, and I stopped doing my hair in those two tall buns. I guess it really bothered me because I know that if a white girl had worn that same red lipstick, he wouldn't have said a thing. The fact that he added the China doll comment, it, it's just like, it points out how, because I look differently, he can say a different thing to me. Ellie said that these two incidents, the one where the boys made fun of her eyes, and the one where her teacher called her a china doll, affected how she thought about her appearance for many years. Her small stature, which she attributes to being ethnically Chinese, was something that caused her a lot of insecurity. And did that incident, or even when teachers pointed out your size, did that affect how you thought about your appearance as an adolescent? Yeah, it did. A lot. Just felt very conscious of, like, my limbs. And, like, when I look at myself in pictures, like, I just, I guess I don't really like the way it looks because I am very small and little compared to the rest of the class. So I really stick out like a sore thumb. Another prevalent Asian trope is that of the model minority. After World War II, Asian immigrants were no longer just single males. 
it became more common for women and families to enter the country. Dr. Andrea Louie, professor of anthropology and founding director of the Asian Pacific American Studies Program at Michigan State University, says that during this time, the U.S. wanted to be perceived as democratic. Thus, treatment of Asian citizens changed. The U.S. had been critiqued by the Soviet Union and other world powers, you know, for being hypocritical for not treating their minorities well. The U.S. was trying to assert itself as a world power in the context of the Cold War, and to do that, they had to demonstrate that they earned that right through um, being a, a democratic and fair nation in which opportunities were available to everybody. Furthermore, the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965 made it easier for people in countries outside of Northern and Western Europe to immigrate to the United States. As a result, many Asians, including those who were highly skilled, settled in the U.S. This demographic was different from the earlier waves, who were mostly manual workers. With these shifts, Asians began to be classified as model minorities, hardworking, successful, and well-educated. To make school more challenging, or else my son will fall behind. I'm sorry, there's not much I can do about a straight-A student. Well, is there extra school? Where is the closest CLC? On the surface, this sounds like a good thing. However, this stereotype is used to unfairly uphold Asians as an example to other minorities, especially African Americans, who've experienced an entirely different history of racism. From slavery to Jim Crow, to police brutality, to inferior health care and education. I think the most dangerous part of this model minority myth is that it is used to drive a racial wedge between Asian Americans and other minority groups. The racial positioning of Asian Americans between black and white, right, they, they clearly have not, even though they've experienced many forms of discrimination and racial violence throughout history, their experiences are not the same. Dr. Louis asserts that the model minority myth pits Asians against other racial groups by problematically claiming their success is based on fictional Asian culture, while implying that there is something inherently wrong with the cultures of African Americans, Latinos, and Native Americans. And holding Asian Americans up as this exceptional, well-behaved minority that supposedly doesn't cause any trouble and just kind of puts their nose to the grindstone and and works their way out of uh, out of poverty. Um, they can be held up as an example of well, look at these people. They also came with nothing, um, but they worked hard and they followed the rules. And look how successful they are. What's wrong with you other groups? Furthermore. Dr. Louie says that the model minority myth homogenizes Asian communities, brushing over immense disparities in education and income within this diverse group. It's not only untrue, but it's a dangerous type of thinking because clearly not all Asian Americans are successful. And the category of Asian American is very broad and very diverse. So to say that their success is due to so-called Confucian values is really overgeneralizing. 
complicated situation, with Mongolian and Burmese Americans having a poverty rate of 25%, more than twice the national average. And when it comes to education, while around 75% of Indian Americans have a bachelor's degree well above the national average, for Bhutanese Americans, that figure is just 15%, which is well below it. Well, my sister Ellie has always been an excellent student and is an overachiever. She didn't feel that most people attributed her academic rigor to her ethnicity as a kid. But some of the other young women I spoke to did. I've always been really good at school. Um, that's always been something that's really important to me. Like I've always been like that 4.0 GPA, like honors classes, etc. Um, but it was always, always um, kind of just discredited in my case by my peers because they're all like saying things like, well, she's Asian. It's expected from her. Like that's just how Asians are. Like they're always supposed to be smart. That was Emily Savageau. She is the 20-year-old adoptee from Bismarck who spoke about her family trip to China in the last episode of Chinese Adoptees, Not Abandoned or Alone. For those of you now tuning in, I'm Annie Prafke, and you're listening to my podcast about Chinese adoptees learning to navigate their identities. All three episodes can be found at prairiepublic.org by searching my name, Annie, P-R-A-F-C-K-E. And is that something that you identified as racism when you were younger? Or is it something that maybe you even you kind of believed yourself? Like at that time, I didn't really identify it as racism um, just because like I also was acknowledging those stereotypes. But at the same time, like looking back, um, you can definitely see how um, they were kind of just pushing the stereotype on me. It may be true in some cases. Um, I don't think that people's accomplishments should be discredited based on racial stereotypes. Emily, like some of the adoptees I spoke with, said that growing up in a community where she was one of the few Asians made her feel out of place. She wanted to blend in with her white peers as much as possible. I think at that period in my life personally, I really did not identify or want to identify identify as being Chinese just because that at that period in my life I was in middle school which is like when teenagers are like at their most judgmental stage and like you just really want to fit in um and that's probably when I was like the the most like quote-unquote whitewashed in my life um it was really when I just wanted to like be like everyone else in my class was being Chinese something that they often pointed out or made fun of you for? Or do you think it was more like self-perception? For me personally, I don't think they w- they ever really pointed it out physically. In my experience, I think it was more like passive aggression um, and kind of like a subconscious, like everyone knew it, but no one wanted to say it out loud. Some people attribute racist jokes and stereotyping to elementary school bullies. Or they claim that these things happened decades ago, and it's better now. Yet, racist acts towards Asians continue today. Hate crimes against Asian Americans have increased across the country since the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. An Asian American viciously beaten on a New York City subway. Asian Americans have been spit on, insulted, and physically attacked as some blame the Chinese, and others they assume are Chinese, for the virus's international spread. 
disturbing rise in attacks on Asian Americans across this country. Tonight, the new and disturbing cases in San Francisco. Two women stabbed in broad daylight. In March, a man in the Atlanta area killed eight people, including six Asian women. Shootings at Atlanta area spas that left eight people dead. Police say the 21-year-old suspect admitted to the shooting, saying he blames the spas for providing an outlet for his addiction to sex. Police also say he was heading to Florida, intending. Emily says she has noticed changes in the way Asians are treated, which she attributes to rhetoric used by the previous administration. Asians, we've definitely had a privilege of not being. Um, discriminated against as harshly as the African-American and Latina community, but now, even with Trump just calling it the coronavirus, the China virus. That name gets further and further away from China, as opposed to calling it the Chinese virus. Any disease in history. I can name Kung Flu. I can name... 19 different versions of names. My sister Ellie has also encountered racism recently. Although she currently attends college in Colorado, she returns to Fargo over school breaks. During these times, she waitresses at a local diner where she says she is frequently the victim of discriminatory jokes and insults. This older couple, they just kept asking me, where are you from? And then I would say, oh, I'm from Fargo but I go to school in Vermont because that's where I used to go. And then um, they said, no, like, where are you really from? And I guess it just made me feel kind of like an outsider. But then I told them that I was born in China, and they were like, oh, that makes sense. She said she gets comments like these weekly when she works at least 20 hours per week. And then the most recent one was like, I walked up to a man at a table, and he asked me if my name was Ching Ching. And it's it's really not funny, but it's kind of funny. And so then I told my boss in a joking way, and he was like, wait, what? And he took it very seriously. He texted his manager, and he was like, do I kick him out, or do I just give him a warning? I felt very good that he was like on my side about it and had my back. Ellie clearly found humor in the situation, but only because it is so ridiculous. She understands that no one should have to deal with these comments. Sometimes humor is an effective coping strategy. I conducted this interview on December 17, 2020. Ellie said the incident had happened the day before. It is in these moments that having others who understood their identities was important for some adoptees. Emily Savageo says she found it easier to talk about experiences of racism with her sister, Eva, who is also a Chinese adoptee, rather than her parents, who are white. I talked about them with Eva just because she could understand my experiences. Um, I don't really think I ever talked to them about my parents just because it was kind of hard for them to really relate because they had never had those experiences. Was it helpful then having a sister who is Chinese who could relate to that aspect with you? Yeah, I think it's, that's a large part of why um, we both are so like politically active um, and why we're both really passionate about just um, equal rights for POCs as, as well as women. 
Ellie doesn't recall interacting much with other adoptees or Asians as a kid. And for some reason, we never really talked about our identities with each other. But recently, she met another Asian adoptee in college, and she said they immediately connected over their shared experiences of being racial minorities. We were going out for cookies, and then we were like, hey, like, wait, are you adopted? And she's like, yeah. And I'm like, oh, no way, me too. We bonded over the fact that we felt very whitewashed. And she's like, oh, that's crazy. Like, this is how I feel. And I was like, oh, that, that's how I feel too. It's glad to know that I'm not alone. Ellie brought up an added complication that many Asians who grew up in the United States experience. While they are constantly reminded that they are not white, they are also made to feel not Asian enough. Asian adoptees, or Asians raised in the U.S., are sometimes called bananas, yellow on the outside, white on the inside. They all spoke Chinese like their entire lives or like have Chinese parents who speak it around the household so they have picked it up a little bit. Here, my sister is referring to classmates in a Mandarin Chinese class she took her freshman year of college. These students grew up with Chinese parents and had knowledge of Chinese language and culture. This was one of her first times being exposed to people with this background. They were more reserved. They knew the right answer right away and just knew when to choose to speak, I guess. Like the right times. Ellie also felt insecure about her lack of Chinese language abilities when she compared herself to non Chinese peers who seemed to pick up the language with ease. It was just weird seeing like white classmates excelling at the Chinese language more than I did because like I did work very hard in that class, but language just doesn't come as easily to me, I don't think, especially Chinese is a difficult language. It was just, I guess, weird to see my white peers excel more than I did when it is my heritage. I just felt like I was not Chinese enough. None of these students were intentionally trying to make Ellie feel inadequate. Nor did she believe anyone hinted that there was a problem that she didn't know Chinese. But I understand how she feels. It's painful to feel like you don't fit in with either group. Dr. Kwan Dobbs says the idea of someone being yellow on the outside, white on the inside, is a racist stereotype that has historically been applied to biracial Asians by white people who feel the need to place them in a racial category. 
the mixed race Asian identity is oftentimes treated as, you know, this kind of tragic figure who's torn between two worlds, who is both the Occidental and the Oriental and, you know, will never be able to fit into either box. When this is applied to Asian adoptees, the intent is the same, to label them as other. You know, this thinking around this whole banana stereotype comes out of racial anxiety. And I would extend this back to adoptees of Asian background while, you know, physically presenting potentially as monoracial um, adoptees are mixed ethnic and that and transnational in terms of their the adoptive background and also the um, birth country background. Some Asian adoptees may say they're whitewashed or use the banana metaphor to describe themselves. Dr. Kwan Dobbs says the appropriation of these terms as a way to try to make sense of a complicated identity is different than when these terms are used to label someone. An Asian American person might use that term to make sense of how um, they're struggling with certain questions around um, racial identity and also um, with regard to uh, cultural, cultural matters that are very personal to them. And of course, it's all up to the individual adoptee to assess what that means in terms of their own individual story. That's an obviously very different context than when a white person may say to an adopted person, well, I just don't think of you as Asian. Or if, if you are Asian, it's only that you're Asian on the outside. You know, that kind of white gaze that's trying to parse, categorize, place within a, a racial hierarchy. It is clear that Ellie is now in the process of navigating her identity as an Asian adoptee. I asked her if her experience in this Chinese language class had an impact on how she thinks about herself. I think it made me more aware that I am Chinese-American and an adoptee, and I think it's made me more okay with that and less of a sore thumb in the Midwest kind of thing. Like, I've kind of more just come to terms with it. I think I, I still need time to, like, embrace it and fully understand culture and, like, actually learn about it. I also think that like being in college, it just allows you to figure out who you are as a person better because you're not in your home environment where you've always been. So it just made me feel a little less out of place. Like me, the women I spoke to wanted to be seen as more than their good grades or the country they were born in or their eye shape. They're Chinese, yes, and they are also adopted and they are also American. And most of them were just learning to embrace the complexity that comes with those identities. This podcast was script-edited by Ashley Thornburg and produced by me, Annie Prafke. Special thanks to Bill Thomas for production assistance, Eric Detheridge for music assistance, and Lily Hanaher for answering all of my editing questions. Thank you also to Dr. Jennifer Kwan Dobbs and Dr. Andrea Louie for sharing their knowledge and expertise, as well as to those who shared their stories with me. 
including the Savageau family and my sister Ellie. The full three-part series can be found at prairiepublic.org by searching my name, Annie Krafke. That's Annie, P-R-A-F-C-K-E. Racing on from her house Looking out for black and white Dark days in the summer A million ways to toe the line Can't wait Holy other Might as well be the seventh sign Ooh.